Our world is dying, politicians are lying And just when you feel like crying Sit and have a listen to people who have shit themselves Hello, I'm Claudia. I'm Evie. That was a bit Mrs. Doubtfire, sorry. Hello, my dears. <laughs> and this week on the podcast today. Oh, that was good. Thank you, dear. So. Nothing like a snow cone in Phoenix. <laughs> oh, there we go again. <laughs> it's like one drop of two of cream. <laughs> Can you actually do the intro like Mrs. Doubtfire? Do you want me to? Yeah. Okay. And we are the hosts of The Poodcast, a podcast where we basically tell stories about people pooing themselves dear. Oh, so should Tan. Sorry. <laughs> I can't. Right. No. That was good. Okay. Sorry. I enjoyed it. The Poodcast is also a podcast that will focus on and discuss the issues surrounding bowel and bladder conditions, such as IBS, Crohn's, colitis, celiac disease, cystitis, urinary incontinence, and plenty, plenty more. We want to break the stigma surrounding these conditions, and we want to get people talking about toilets. We have historically found these topics especially difficult to talk about, whether it be an invisible illness or just what our bodies do naturally every day. So we think it's time to change that. And this week, our focus will be on ulcerative colitis and body acceptance. Um, Claudia. Yes? Now, this is something pressing that I want to talk to you about. I'm ready. Because normally we'd say things like, how is your bum and how is your tum? Is that not what we're doing? Well, I would like to ask you, how is your clitoris? Oh my God. (laughs) Because we were out the other night. We were. In a socially distanced bar. And we got a bit drunk. We did. And Claudia, uh, sorry. (laughs) Well, Claudia recently got a small sum of money because she um settled a court case after she had uh, an injury that i think we've spoken we've kind of i'm sure on. we've covered it many times <laughs> we've, we've touched on it in the in the the podcast so i feel a bit weird about talking about this when it is your story no, and i don't want to interrupt you especially as because i'm dobbing you in but <laughs> you really are claudia got a bit of money and we'd heard this thing about the womanizer the womanizer is this vibrator <laughs> which I don't know anything about, Claudia Dabhand, but um, this incredible and a very expensive high-end product called the Womanizer. And um, we were all joking about how Claudia had been at an event and the the a prize, I think, was mm-hmm. it that everyone was fighting over it, really wanted the Womanizer and Claudia was a bit annoyed that she didn't get it. And not only did I not get it, my friend got it, who was staying at my house that evening. So it was in my house, so within my clutches. It's £170, guys. Apparently, well. it makes you orgasm in eight seconds. Why would you want to orgasm in eight seconds? I don't know, but, but why you... wouldn't you want to try it? Yeah, okay. For free. She got it for free. So she got it for free. And then we... So we heard pray tell of this fucking womanizer. Yeah. We then get a bit drunk. We start looking at it online. And we both look at the page. And we both literally exclaim at the same time. <laughs> it's on sale! So I... It's gone down to a mere £99. A mere £99, guys. I was freaking out and so we'd had a bit to drink and we were all talking about oh wouldn't it be hilarious if we bought it for a friend's birthday if we all clubbed in and bought for this friend and then suddenly I was like guys I've been paid my court case money I'm gonna buy the womanizer and it <laughs> we all start screaming everyone's doing a very sassy clicking fingers in the air I felt like it was so exciting that I was gonna use this money because I got it because my body had been broken and now I was gonna buy something that would make my body feel fantastic again it felt like a fantastic full circle and did. so i did i drunkenly purchased the, the womanizer, womanizer. i'm not gonna lie i did wake up the next morning being like what the fuck have i done i've just well, spent 99 pounds on a vibrator but we also were like it's been dispatched it's, it's too late <laughs> and then there was something really empowering about it and it, it did feel it felt fantastic and well then i did it so well so though I I look up, I get an email from the woman. It's a German company as well. Oh. So yeah, so I got an I got an email saying, um, yeah, it's been delivered. And I was like, well, I beg your fucking mouth, it hasn't. <laughs> fucking hasn't. Um, checked outside my house, checked in my bin, checked in my recycling bin, just in case I put it in there. Nope, not there. And then I saw that it had been signed for by a Miss Palmer. Who I don't know a Miss Palmer? Palmer. How do I get this back? 
like, what am I supposed to do? Is that one do? of your neighbours, Miss Palmer? Well, I didn't recognise the name, so I don't think it's one of my immediate neighbours. Oh, and God. so what am I supposed to do? Well, Go running around Wandsworth, knocking on doors, looking for flushed women, like, who look overly <laughs> happy with themselves. Be like, excuse me, you look very content. Do you have my womaniser, Miss Palmer? <laughs> it is like an awful game of Cluedo, isn't it? Miss Palmer in the bedroom <laughs> with the womaniser. Like... <laughs> And so I didn't know what to do. And then I saw doing a bit of detective work. I also obviously sent this to all my friends who were all pissing themselves that somewhere Miss Palmer had my womanizer. 99 pounds, guys. And then I saw there was a dot, 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 and I said, Miss Palmer. And then it said number five. Oh. We're number six. Oh, next door. So I realised that maybe next door they have a nanny. So maybe it was theirs. But I was too afraid to go get it because what if the packaging was just like a massive dildo. And they have small children. I didn't want to... And also, it now been, it had now been two days and they hadn't dropped it round. So oh were they God. waiting? Like, you would kind of wait, wouldn't you? You'd hilariously be like, yeah, come on, little girl, come come get your vibrator. Like, like I they... Know. I don't know, maybe there'd be some joy in waiting for somebody to humiliate yeah. themselves. But then, but then why wouldn't you just leave it outside the I door? Don't maybe know. Away. Yeah, I don't like, know. Yeah, like, so I was then terrified. So I... <laughs> really sneakily my boyfriend a package had been delivered there as well and so i text him on the way home and be like babe um i think your your record's been delivered next door would you mind would you mind going and getting it but then he didn't see the text so i then i did go around the next day i opened the door well i opened the door sorry can i please have i knocked the door and their three-year-old opened it peering around the side she's like hello so, hi, darling. I because I've met them a couple of times before. I was like, I live next door. I think something's been delivered here. And I heard the dad go, Oh yeah. And I thought, Oh no, fuck. And he went, Do you want to give it to her? And I was like, There is no way this now has a giant. Uh, so oh, luckily, God. it was just it was this massive box which scared, which made me afraid. I won't <laughs> lie. I was like, What have I bought? Like this industrial German dildo. But it, she, he then passed it to the little girl and it, it was just a, a, a small brown box and she gave it to me. Oh my gosh, that's not okay, is it really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and ever since I, I'm, I'm quite happy with my life. Have you purchased? <laughs> Have you reviewed it? Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, really? It's fantastic. Yeah. I feel incredible tension between us right now. <laughs> It's in the room as well. It's here. Can you not you, feel you the actually, vibrations? He did actually send us a video of you using it on your boy, the back of your boyfriend's neck and he just goes, fuck off, oh dear. <laughs> so, safe to say the womanizer has been a success? I would highly recommend, guys. Palmer's clutches? If it's Miss Palmer didn't, I don't think she used it, little sneaky bitch. Um, I would recommend it, especially if it's still on sale. It's £99. Why are we... Why do we Especially so, if it's on sale. But, like, why do we pounds. so easily be like, oh, I'll spend £99 on, you know, a, 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 a rug or a new pair of boots or whatever, when actually this is something that's going to make you feel better yeah. every damn day, yet we're, we every don't... Every day? Yeah. God, you must be exhausted. It's addictive. Is it? Anyway. Is it like um, in Sex and the City where they have to do an intervention for Charlotte? She gets addicted <laughs> to her rampant rabbit. And, but it's so it's such a weird storyline because like Charlotte is like she, meanwhile in Upper Manhattan Charlotte becomes a recluse and they're like going into her flat and she's like <laughs> clutching onto the the vibrator and they're like come on Charlotte she's like no no it's so weird yeah I like, would say imagine. it's like that I mean, yeah I mean it, I feel like it's pretty healthy pretty normal I I feel like I have a spring in my step oh fantastic Evie. I'm not going to ask you how your clitoris is. How's your... Well, unless you want to, me to ask well, you. I'm a bit confused, actually, because sort of on the back of what you've just been saying, I had a bit of a confusing dream last night. Did you? Where I was going out with Zoe Kravitz. Oh, so your clitoris is feeling stimulated. But I was a man in the dream. But I was completely myself. I looked like myself, but I was a man. How did you know that you were a man? You just knew. You just I was knew a man. You were a man. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was like... She's a man. Yeah. <laughs> He's a man. <laughs> she, she's a man. She's yeah. a man. Yeah. Um... And I'm pretty sure there was like a reference to my penis. All right. But um, I definitely was my, exactly myself. Okay. But I get that a lot in dreams where like I'm Robert De Niro in the dream, but I also look completely like, and sound like myself. Oh, yeah. that have, Yeah. I get that all the time. So I, I had a dream. I was going out with, um, with Zoe Kravitz, but I actually, on reflection, I know where that came from because I was looking at um, on Instagram an article about famous mothers and daughters who look identical so it's like Gwyneth Paltrow and her daughter they look uh, the yeah. same Reese Witherspoon and her daughter they look the same and Zoe Kravitz and Lisa Bonet yeah her mum they look identical um and so I think that's maybe where it came from but was I also, it a sexual dream 
Not really, but oh. I was going out with her. Oh, okay, my fine, but not in a sexual way. Well, there was no sex in the dream. Sweet. I didn't have sex with Zoe Kravitz in my dream, but she was my girlfriend and I was a man. So I've woken <laughs> up this morning feeling a bit confused because it's like, as a man, do I fancy Zoe Kravitz? Or do I just fancy Zoe Kravitz? Or does I, do I not fancy Zoe Kravitz? And it was basically just because I looked at this Instagram thing. Listeners, if you are as hooked as I am to this story, don't worry. <laughs> We will review this week by week as to how you My how Zoe, you feel Zoe for Zoe Kravitz because we will we will get to the bottom of this as to how whether you fancy her whether you fancy her as a man mm. whether you want to be a man there's so much to unpack here I don't I I think it's all fine actually Are you sure I had a dream at school though that I was uh, going out with my friend female friend Georgie mm. um, when I was about 16 and I was sharing a bed with her at the time yeah I sleep over woke up I felt very weird the next day yeah that's I, my only two sort of I would describe as as same sex I've had a sex dream about a friend and I told her because I thought it was really flattering and she got really weirded out and like well, was I just, kind of like I just, avoiding me for the I rest of the brunch I just thought it was a bit weird well, I don't actually fancy you I just had a sex dream about you get over yourself I would actually love it if one of my friends had a sex dream that's what I that's why I told apparently, her apparently it's about respect I think that's it's it comes if somebody to. said to me I've had a sex dream about you I feel fucking fantastic uh, I just like to think that I am in other people's dreams because every time I ask my boyfriend what he's been dreaming about he's been dreaming about uh, either making a ham sandwich or he supports Arsenal he'd be like oh, I was having a dream that Arsenal were 1-0 down I'm like your <sighs> dreams make me sad permission to discuss condition this week, we are joined by blogger Billy Anderson. Billy has ulcerative colitis and a stoma bag, and she runs the incredible Trust Your Gut blog. Billy is an advocate for body acceptance and raising awareness around invisible disabilities and disability representation. She talks openly about no colon still rolling and inadvertently started the hashtag still not asking for it movement, even if she didn't mean to. Billy, how are you doing? <laughs> Hi. Oh, that's such a nice intro. Thanks, guys. <laughs> How's your bum and tum, my love? Yeah, absolutely fine at the moment. It's, things are going quite well, actually. So, Billy, you run uh, Trust Your Gut. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So, I started the blog about three weeks after I was diagnosed. Well, in my head, I started the blog three weeks after I diagnosed because I was in hospital and was in the dark deep depths of nowhere like because the hospitals have no wi-fi they also have no opportunity for a social life so i have no wi-fi no entertainment no tv no friends i was just sat on my own um and just started writing down like how the diagnosis the, the sort of prerequisite to being diagnosed and just how it all made me feel and i started writing it all down and then sent it to a friend of mine at the end of the week and she was like oh this is actually a really good way for me to kind of understand what you're going through and like how you feel and the way you've put it kind of almost makes me feel like I can be in your shoes to some way shape or form so then found out I was quite good at writing and started sharing it with more people and this was literally just like emailing it to people and and seeing whether it was worth sharing and then I had a couple of people like oh this is this is really good like I like the fact that I can just read this and then come back with a load of questions. The thing about being diagnosed with a chronic illness is that when you're faced with healthy people, they don't really know how to go about you and don't really know how to navigate whether it's acceptable to ask questions or not. So this, I think, opened that discussion and gave them the opportunity to ask questions, which for me was really important. And then uh, one day I was like, do you know what? Screw this. I'm going to get it online. That was probably about, I don't know, maybe about three or four months after I was diagnosed. And I was like, I'm going to get this online. I feel like it's helping people. And at the start, it was kind of for a few people, for my friends, for my family, so that I didn't have to keep telling, retelling the same story. Yeah, that mm. makes total um, sense, particularly if you've got illness where you're feeling tired, you don't want to have to repeat it. keep repeating yourself. Exactly. And then I started putting it on Instagram at the same time. And I mean, it just majorly snowballed from there. And here I am, oh God, three and a half years later and did not realise it was going to be the platform that it is at the moment and what kind yeah. of questions did you find that people were asking you the most I think we found that actually through doing this podcast that there's a lot of questions that people feel stupid to ask maybe about a stoma bag and things like that what kind of were the the questions that kept cropping up for people to start with people weren't really asking me questions they were telling me they knew what it was and how I felt oh <laughs> even though quite a lot of people were like oh yeah I my cousin's 
cat twice removed brother has got IBS and understands exactly how you feel yeah. and <laughs> treats it holistically with vegetables. And I'm like, right, okay. I'm cute, um, just like me then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there was a lot of that before there were questions, I think, because I didn't feel like I could really share any sort of major details when I was first diagnosed. The weirdest questions I think I have now with my ostomy rather than with my colitis, because with the colitis, it was like, oh, like, do you just shit your brains out every day? And I'm like, well, yeah, pretty much. And then <laughs> try and get some sleep. So <laughs> to be honest, the questions I get now are probably a bit more weird. Like I had someone ask me the other day, which I mean, I know there shouldn't be anything as a stupid question, but I really feel like this was a bit of a stupid question. <laughs> because, <laughs> because someone commented on one of my pictures on Instagram, when you have sex, you take the bag off. But why would, why you? would you? It's not going in, not going in there. <laughs> <laughs> Where do they think it goes? <laughs> and I was like, just went back with, considering my intestine hangs in the bag, I really feel like that'd be a bit of a messy affair. Sort of weird foreplay. They're going to jiggle about with it a little bit. Oh, like, God. what is that? But I mean, good on you for just answering it. Yes. And just, you know, clearing that up. You could easily have just ignored it, I suppose. But... See, this is the thing. When people ask me what I suppose some people have asked as a stupid question, I always think, like, what's your rationale for asking that question? Like, what what do you think I'm going to come back with? I don't eat for two days in preparation. <laughs> yeah. The bag kind of acts as like a condom. So, you know. I mean, but oh I guess, I guess you know, even if they seem like stupid questions, I guess it's good that people are asking. Can you tell us a bit about your diagnosis process? How old were you when, when you were diagnosed with ulcerative colitis? I was 20 when I was diagnosed, but it took about six or seven months to actually diagnose me. Wow. Actually some people spend years like suffering and, and not diagnosed so in in a grand scheme of things that's not actually that much of a long process and I do actually think that it was partly down to my own stubbornness of not wanting to see a doctor so I think if there's anything I can put out like if you are having any troubles with your gut or anything like please just go and see a doctor as soon as you can because there is a for sure possibility that if I'd been to see a doctor like in the first week then I probably would not be shitting into a bag right now so I started seeing symptoms sort of the summer like 2016 roughly and like when you google blood and stool all it comes up with is bowel cancer and that's it I was 19 and I was just like absolutely no way like hell no definitely not that just gonna ignore it it'll go away and then after two months it still had not gone away so thought well I mean it's not going away so I really should go and see someone about this now and in those two months I've really taken an out of sight out of mind because I was so scared by looking at Google that I was like, there's absolutely no way. Went to see a GP and I had like, I was just feeling really bloated and had a bit of bleeding, but it wasn't, I mean, it had been going on for a while, but it didn't, there wasn't like loads. And so <laughs> this was the first time I'd seen this GP and I sat in front of her. She didn't know who I was. She didn't look up any of my medical history. She like just asked me how I felt. So I told her all of this no tests, no nothing. There was no like, can we look at you? Like, can we just like test your stomach or anything? And she was like, I think you've got bowel cancer. I'm referring you to a cancer unit. And I was 19. I was like, oh, uh, and (laughs) my first instance was to laugh. Yeah. I laughed because I thought she was joking. And then she was literally like totally unmoved, did not say anything else. I was like, no, 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 I'm I'm serious. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Are you going to give me any drugs in between? I'm like, no, like just go home. A doctor, will, a, a, a um, cancer unit down the road will call you in minimum three weeks. If if you had had bowel cancer, let's say it turned out you had had bowel cancer, how was that experience of them telling you that you had? It sounds to me as though that was quite um, quite an unempathetic appointment. Yeah, and just the fact that she didn't even there was no like oh like let's get a blood test and see if we can find anything or maybe you should do like. Uh, a stool test or something like that it was just like I think you've got bowel cancer were the first words that came out of her mouth so young as well and were you on your own at the appointment yeah I was on my own I mean I suppose they have to kind of go with the everything you've described like yeah maybe you you could have had bowel cancer Mm. so I get like you know I'm glad you were taken seriously but at the same time you know especially I mean anyone but especially a 19 year old like can't really deliver news in such a sort of like pragmatic and and then be like off you go someone will yeah, be in contact gonna call within you. the next three weeks like 
I mean, how? Yeah, do you... exactly. So, so what was what was the, that waiting like between that and then your next appointment? So I actually went home. I told my mum because I hadn't told her about anything that was going on, which is very rare because normally I like first thing like I don't know like. I'll go to the loo and it will burn when I pee. And I'm like, mom. <laughs> so even now and I'm 24. So <laughs> why, why um, had you not, not told her? Were you really frightened or? Yeah. Cause the first thing I did was Google it. So I think that was what just was like, Oh no, I, I don't need to tell anyone. Like it will go away. It will be fine. And I think I needed like the validation of a doctor to sort of tell me what it could be or could not be before I jumped. Well, jumped to any more conclusions than I already had, but I came home. I told mum as soon as I got home and luckily we had private medical insurance. We rang them and they got me in for a consultation with a gastro doctor. I went to see him and I, he was a big guy. Like he was huge. He was like, like towering six foot and I'm only five foot two. So that was quite intimidating. His desk was massive. And I remember just sitting at the end, like other side of the desk, just being like, I really do not want to be here. I do not want to talk about my bowels with a man in front of me. Like this is horrendous. Mm. He looked through all the notes that the GP had written. He said, okay, we're not going to look for bowel cancer because I don't think it's bowel cancer. Like she should never have done that. She'd never have said that. Um, But we'll do a colonoscopy just in case. We'll see what happens. Like, here's some bowel prep I'll see you next week we'll book it for next week I was like oh okay (laughs) (laughs) that was it and he just gave me loads of leaflets was like go away and read about it like take this it gives you all the instructions like I'll see you next week and it was literally like a five minute appointment I was like oh oh okay so the following week we went in for the colonoscopy which was pretty uncomfortable and then came out and he said oh like we we couldn't find anything like we've taken some biopsies, but we couldn't find anything. Like we don't know what the cause of the bleeding is. So come back in a month and we'll do another one in a month. And I was like, what? Is- I, and by this time, like I hadn't even had a blood test. Like no one had even like gone straight from <laughs> seeing me to go and ask me. Like there was nothing in between. I just, I, I just keep thinking about how young <laughs> you were yeah. when you were going through all of this and what a massive weight on your shoulders. And you don't even know what that weight actually is. So you're just carrying around all these different things. I mean, how was this kind of affecting your social life? Were, were you at uni at this time? What what was your kind of outer life going on while all this was happening? So I was mid, um, I was in between my first and my second year of uni. So because this happened over the summer, I was waiting to go back. So I'd had the colonoscopy in the August and I was waiting to go back in the September, sort of like mid-September. He said to me, oh, we'll give you some enemas to to kind of like see if that does anything. But me being like super fucking stubborn, I was like, hell no, I'm not doing that. Like they're going in a drawer and I'm never using them because that is a horrendous experience. I went back to uni and within two months, like just couldn't walk. I wasn't on any meds, like just was going to the bathroom like, anything between 20 and 30 times a day would wake up like drenched in a cold sweat like I had to sleep in towels because it was so bad I'd lost those away I wasn't eating like could hardly sleep would spend like nights in on the loo and my days just in bed like there were so many opportunities where I remember waking up like passed out from in my shower in the bathroom or something like that like it was it was so bad and this whole time, I'm telling everyone else, like, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's great. Like, don't worry about me. I'm okay. Why do you think it was that you were telling everybody that you were okay rather than telling people what you were going through? I think because still part of me just thought, oh, it'll go away. It'll be fine. Like, it's nothing. It doesn't matter. And I think that because the second doctor was like, oh, we couldn't find anything wrong with you. That was what you're supposed to say. If I'd heard that at 19, I would have been like, great, bye. Yeah. <laughs> I can just go on to live my life. All you need exactly. is like, one excuse I think to be told that you're okay and that everything you're doing is fine so you're like yeah yeah bye and Billy about weight loss and we saw the other day on your Instagram obviously in the like death of um Chadwick Boseman due to his battle with colon cancer how judgmental people can be about weight loss and presume that they know what is going on in somebody's life can you tell us about your experience with that yeah so pretty much from from that time like I'd lost about roughly around two stone, I think, in like three weeks, I think it was, or two weeks. I think partly because I didn't know, obviously I didn't, at the time I didn't really know what was going on. One of my mates who who knew me quite well, I remember she hadn't seen me like in those two weeks where I'd lost all the weight. And I remember like really struggling to open my front door to let her in. And I opened the front door and literally her face just dropped. She was like, 
who who are you who is this like this is not my friend anymore I mean you must maybe at that point have, have realized that in order to lose that amount of weight in such a short space of time like there must have been something else going on yeah yeah and I think I was always in pajamas I was always in baggy trousers and a big jumper so I didn't really see how much weight I'd lost by that time it was roughly November of 2016 and my dad had had enough he was like this is ridiculous like no <laughs> I am not sitting on the sidelines anymore he dragged me to A&A we were in A&E five and a half hours and I my my resting heart rate was 153 beats per minute I think and the A&E doctor handed me iron tablets and was like, oh, it's probably an iron deficiency. It's likely your menstrual cycle. Go home. We'll see you later. They just thought it was an iron deficiency. Yeah. So how, how did you then get diagnosed? What, what, was the, what was the turning point? Roughly around a month after that, in December, after no, the first time finished. A month? <laughs> and also iron tablets are really harsh. So for a lot of people with a gut condition, they shouldn't be taking raw iron tablets unless a doctor has specifically said that's okay they actually made my condition like 10 times worse <laughs> I ended up getting an appointment with a specialist gastro doctor um in the December I mean my dad like had to carry me in like I couldn't even sit up because I just was felt so sick I had an evening appointment with him it was my appointment was at like seven o'clock in the evening because he used to run an evening clinic and he ordered every single test under the sun and was like calling around everyone in the hospital like I have this this young lady here like you you are seeing her now like even if you're about to get in your car and go home she needs these tests done now so I had a mini sigmoidoscopy um which is like a small colonoscopy I had an x-ray I had an ultrasound I had blood tests and I had stool tests which is everything they should have done at the beginning it took a week for those tests to come back and then he diagnosed me on the 6th of January 2017. Wow and and when you got that diagnosis how how did you feel? Well I didn't know what it was so I was kind of like oh cool like what do we do how do I get cured like how does this all go away what are you going to do if you do for me and he was like no 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 like this is not we can't cure you this is not a thing that we can cure you on I was like oh no don't be ridiculous like telling a doctor has to do his own fucking job <laughs> and <laughs> and they're like oh you know it's just about drug management so they got me on loads of steroids like I was on every single kind of pill under the sun I was on steroids for about three weeks and then what happened was is basically my protein levels I think they'd one or the other but they'd either dropped or they'd gone sky high but the basically they're like we we can tell that that your body is having a complete freak out so then they admitted me to hospital about three weeks after I was diagnosed <laughs> I was sat on the hospital bed and this is the first time like the worst I'd had was a cold before all of this so <laughs> I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> he walked in and he handed me leaflets for surgery and was like, we could be doing this to you in three days. You need to you need to read up on what this is. Oh, good. Fantastic. I'll just clear my plans. Oh, my God. And what was the surgery that they were saying at the time? Uh, that was a subtotal colectomy. So a subtotal colectomy is where they remove your whole large intestine, but they leave your rectal stump and... Sometimes they take some. Sometimes it's temporary. Sometimes it's permanent. It all depends on on what situation you are going in. The plan was for mine to be temporary, but I didn't even know what it was. I was like, well, "No, I'm not reading that. I, you, have, you haven't even given me any medication." Like, I'm take it back. That. I literally threw my toys out of the pram. I was such a fucking two year old. It's ridiculous. But I don't. Um, I think we were speaking to um uh Bryony Hopkins about this as well, and she kept saying she was like, "I was so stubborn. I was so stubborn." But I don't think it's being stubborn. Like it's it's your body, and I think you saying that you know that a lot a large part of it surely has to be fear because people are throwing all these things at you and trying to protect yourself. I think it's I think especially as women, if you tell people that you don't want to do something, it it's almost comes across as being stubborn or bossy. But ultimately, it's just you saying that you know you need more information or you don't want to do this thing that's going to cause you lots of pain, which is totally yeah, or you're just scared, fine as well. Fine. So is your stoma now permanent? I know you said that they thought it was going to be temporary. Is it is it now that it will be permanent? So I didn't actually have the surgery over that week. Um they punched me with like so many drugs and I went home and then I did another I did loads of treatment up until the December of that year and then I had another appointment with my gastroenterologist and he was like nothing is getting better and we don't we don't have enough time to put you on on any more medication and by this point I was in my third year at uni 
because I'd managed to pass my second year and I did really well. (laughs) How did you do that? What were you studying? History. Oh my God. And I managed to do all of my papers from hospital or from bed and then I'd email it to one of my friends who would print it off and hand it in for me. Listen, I mean, kids, there is no excuse. I did all my essays from bed, but not because of that. Reason. <laughs> very different, very, very different, different scenario. And I didn't do very well. No, so. no, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually my best year. Those are my best grades that I got in my second year, which is baffling. So I'd gone into my third year. I had like five months left of my degree. So I was like, oh, can I just finish my degree? And then maybe we think about surgery. And he was like, you're not going to survive for another five months. Like, you'll be dead in five months if we don't do this. Oh, wow. So I was like, oh, okay. We'll do it now, then. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Do it. Yeah. And then I had the surgery. I So I basically packed up my whole life. I moved home and I was referred to the St. Mark's Hospital in Harrow, which is a bowel specialist hospital. They're like, they're, I think, one of the best in the world for these kinds of things. My mum carried me basically up the stairs to my appointment with my surgeon, who was under the impression that it was like a consultation and I was going to go home and he was going to come back and we were going to schedule it in. Like, but my my no, previous no. gastroenterologist had not briefed him on how ill I was. Like, I was literally a walking zombie. It was so awful. <laughs> he was like, can we just check her heart rate and her blood pressure, please? So a nurse, like, wheeled me off and did that and then wheeled me back in. And she wrote it on a piece of paper. And I knew at this point it was really bad because she, like, slid it across his desk. <laughs> and he kind of... <laughs> he secretly kind of was still talking to my mum and he still was talking to my mum at the same time but still looking at this piece of paper and just stopped mid-sentence and went have we got a bed oh and they admitted me so then I had the surgery and I had a subtotal colectomy about six days after I was admitted so that's what they did they left my rectal stump in and my stoma at the moment is temporary which means I can have more options at a later date and decide which avenue I want to go down and and what would your choices be so there's three choices one is a permanent stoma so they remove the rectal stump and they just form the stoma as where it is now the other one is a reversal surgery which is where they reconnect your small bowel to the rectal stump that is left Um, but that is all dependent on whether the disease is still active so if you have active disease it's likely that that's not possible and quite a lot of the time they'll give you medication to bring that down or see if it's even possible to bring that down and then the other one is a j pouch where they kind of it's really clever but they they take your rectal stump out and they make a like a reservoir out of your small intestine and then you go to the bathroom not normally but semi-normally but I wouldn't have a bag on my front with that one either. At the moment, is there for you any particular goal, anything that you would you would want, or are you just please, like want to go along with whatever is best at the time? Yeah, I think there are so many risks with all of them, and I'm not entirely sure whether all the risks outweigh each other. At the moment, I'm quite happy with my ostomy, but like I'm happy with it next week and next month and next year. But having it forever is like, whoa, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. and once I have a permanent bag that's it I have a permanent bag for life so it's whether I want to decide now I mean they normally give you about five years to make a decision so I've got another two and a half to go that's something that like makes my head explode like yeah I'm not surprised that yeah. decision is that decision is like is a big one yeah huge yeah that yeah particularly sort of if everything is kind of permanent I think that's quite frightening because I don't think any aspect of your life you want to feel is absolutely permanent yeah God, I yeah. mean maybe I'm not the best ad- advert for marriage but <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean like you know like if anything you saw like this is permanent this is that for the rest of your life I find that incredibly confronting and it's I just such a commitment yeah I, I actually I mean I am and I'm not but I, I am like even the thought of like booking a few days away in a couple of months I'm like well I don't know what I'm going to be doing these days like I just don't really God, know like, and I just don't know why you're putting so much pressure on me to decide I pray for the success of this podcast Jesus <laughs> um, Billy, one of the reasons why, you know, your your blog and your Instagram, I think, is so successful is that you talk so much about body acceptance and body positivity. When did you start or have you kind of always been kind of an advocate for this? Or when did you start to feel really passionate about body positivity? I mean, you know, we all go on these kind of, I hate the word journey. So like airy fairy and like... Passionate journey. LA Gwyneth Paltrow goop shit. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I get this question quite a bit, but I don't think that body acceptance in itself is a destination. Like you're not just going to get to some point and be like, woohoo, I love everything and everything's great. For me, it's kind of been a very like 
up and down road like pre-diagnosis and all of that it was like using social media to like hate on myself and follow like fashion and fitness influencers that were using photoshop and I didn't know that because I was 18 and so I've gone from like totally hating myself and using Instagram as a way of like destroying that even further to then that being completely unattainable by being like five stone with colitis to now where it's like well I am kind of my own I'm my own body demographic like there are there are people that look like me but we are not the supposed norm for want of a better word phrasing it so I think for me now it's very much like you go through those motions and it's creating your own standard of beauty and your own standard of body acceptance I think for anyone just saying you know you've got to kind of create your own standards I think it's absolutely right but it isn't easy and I think it's very remarkable that you know somebody like yourself is you know managing to do that you know particularly when you've been through so much and surgery and and everything I think for anyone it's hard I mean I even if I know a picture is photoshopped sometimes I still like well I don't look like that even Mm -hmm. if I know it's photoshopped yeah yeah like well that might be possible there was a survey the other day and it said something like 39 percent um of women do would not want to put a unfiltered photo of themselves on Instagram. And I wonder how much of that percent wouldn't give a shit about doing it if everybody else wasn't doing it. It's kind of like, well, I would, but nobody else is putting up an unfiltered. So I want to feel like I'm keeping up with them. So I won't do it. Like, I think that there's that sense of bravery of even looking at other people and being like, you're wrong. So I'm going to show people what I think is right, as opposed to just saying, oh, well, I've got to keep up with everybody else. I think they're introducing something now whereby you have to show if your picture is edited. I think Instagram, yes, it has to come up with that edited in the corner. I think mm-hmm. a spark of that was the Courtney, that classic Courtney Kardashian, Kardashian picture, mm-hmm. where there's a there's footage of her on the same day as the picture was taken and it looks like two different people. I yeah. mean, it really is insane. Um, so what do you now do on, on social media to kind of help with body positivity or body acceptance what are what what is it that you do so I share every single tiny aspect of what it's like to eat shit into a bag at 24 (laughs) (laughs) which in itself is all fun and games I don't class myself as as an influencer or a blogger I'm literally just someone that posts pictures and people happen to like it so (laughs) (laughs) the reason why I love social media and because everyone's like social media is so bad for you it's like the scum of the earth but actually I think going off what we were talking about a minute ago with the kind of how you're consuming media I think is really important because if you're social if you use your social media to benefit your mental and physical health by following people who you think are for want of a better way empowering you then I think that is the most important thing and there are so many people that I follow within and without the community for ostomies for inflammatory bowel disease for chronic illness that just do that so well and I think that is my favorite thing is that being online in the way I am means that like I can have a chat with someone on the other side of the world and we have something in common. What we would also like to play a clip of, and we might even play it at the end of this interview, is that you have a page on your um, blog called The Page of Positivity. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because we'd also really like to play a, a part of the video from it. So that started because there was a story on the BBC about a man who had decided to choose to, for a court to decide whether he was allowed to do assisted suicide over having an ostomy at 33. There's a lot more information that wasn't published. So I imagine he was in a very difficult health situation. But it, I think it kind of shook the stoma community quite a bit because there's so many of us all under the age of 30 who have had our ostomies for a while or not but still find so much positivity from having one and I feel like if he had been educated on that there could have been a chance that could have helped him I created this page and I got people to send me like one line positive thing of why they thought their stoma bag was a good thing for them and then I decided that it should go a bit further and reached out to I think there's 27 people involved in the video and it was 27 people from all over the globe who have an ostomy and it was one line on why they loved their bag and we put that into a big compilation for a video that is that that is is remarkable though that's like that's so wonderful I think the conversation surrounding this surgery as well has changed so much I remember when I was at school there was um 
a girl in my year and her father had Crohn's disease and he was about to go for his stoma surgery. From what I remember, it was quite a while ago, but she said to me that her doctor, her doctors had said to him, you better write a will. I, oh I remember at the time thinking, God, Crohn's disease is, you know, it's a, it's a death sentence, basically. That was like my perception of what it was. I now reflect back on that and think, what a thing to have to th- think now from everyone that we've spoken to who've been through stoma surgery. They're able to live their life more fully than they have for, you know, the previous four or five years, mm-hmm. maybe more. Definitely. Um, so, I mean, what a fantastic thing that you, that you did. Again, why it's all about representation until you see people celebrating it then you kind of then you almost go off stats don't you instead of actual real life people real life experiences so I'm sure it means so much to so many people if somebody wanted to come and look at your amazing social media where would they find you my Instagram handle is Billy Anderson X um Billy with an IE please not with a Y that's not how you spell my name and everything is on there thank you so so much it's been wonderful talking to you it was so much fun I feel like I could do this all day. Let's! Thanks, Billy. Stop what you're doing. Let's talk about pooing. So now is part of the show where we read out our turd tales or bladenage sent in to us uh, by you, the listeners. Thank you so much for those of you that have sent them in. They are hysterical. Evie, what's our turd tale of the week? Or is it a bladenage of the week? We actually have a bladenage oh, this week. Oh, go on then, I you think, naughty minx. Is this our first bladenage? We did have the one um, about cystitis at the zoo where you oh, yeah. um, famously got confused between a giraffe and a camel. If, if you want to relive that, please, let's let's discuss. Which episode is that in? Uh, episode three. Okay, yeah, if you want to go back and listen to that, please do. It's hysterical. So this week we have a bladder not anecdote. Hi, folks. Love the pod. Thanks. <laughs> love the pod. So this is from a friend of the pod. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, oh, friend. I've always wanted a friend of the podcast. I've always wanted a friend. Thought I'd share a story that might be good for your blood and our section. There are few feelings quite like needing to go for a wee so badly, but having literally zero options to make the required toilet stop. On the following occasion, these were even accompanied by what I will henceforth refer to as the wee sweats. When you're so desperate that not only is relieving yourself the only thing you can think about, but your body begins to relentlessly perspire, presumably in a primal attempt to get rid of the bladder liquid by whatever means necessary. This story takes us back to the heady days of summer 2003 and barely a day has gone by since when I haven't thought about it. After a long Saturday shift at my job in retail, I joined a few of my colleagues at O'Neill's for a much needed post-work pint or two or three. Hello. With three pints of lager swilling inside me and the confidence that this provides, I left the pub and headed to the bus stop where I would wait for the bus to take me to my friend's house party. I didn't need a wee when I left and the bus is only 45 minutes. Magic. Can I just say, yeah. I really need a wee right now. Like, this is... Do you, you want to go? No, keep going. But this is, like, the worst thing <laughs> Sorry. that could be happening. Sorry, keep going, keep okay. going. As the wee pressed on the insides of my bladder, oh, it bulged... But I made that up, sorry. Is that what oh, I was saying? <laughs> sorry. Okay, breathe. My bladder was close to bursting. No, again. Sorry, okay, I'll go. I hate no, you! About 20 minutes into the journey, the beer buzz I was enjoying was replaced with a sensation I vaguely needed the loo and the realisation that I probably should have visited the toilet before I left the pub. As is often the way with drinking beer, the effect on one's bladder seems to take more of an immediate impact than other liquids. Like something out of a Christopher Nolan blockbuster, time is seemingly rendered immaterial by pints of lager and I swiftly went from <laughs> DEFCON 5 to impending code yellow situation. Oh God. With half the journey to go and the Saturday evening traffic even worse, I was really starting to panic. I was sat on a busy top deck of the bus and was ap- approaching the final town stop before things started to get quieter between the shops and my friend's house. I had to think quickly. Should I exit the bus now and attempt to find somewhere to go? But where? Or should I stand firm and not move in an attempt to keep things settled? Age-old problem. Could I hold it another 15 minutes? It was now or never. With a little hope of finding somewhere suitable to go, I decided to stay put. Wise? No. Brave? Not really. <laughs> Eyes on the prize. There's a pristine lavatory waiting for you in, a, in around 15 minutes at your friend's house. You can do this. Put on a song that will take your mind off it. Think about the best Arsenal lineup. Plan your death row meal. Pull yourself together. Five minutes to go. I'm dripping with sweat, rocking back and forward. You're going to wee yourself. You're going to wee yourself. And the stupid work uniform. Who the fuck wears beige trousers anyway? <laughs> I looked around. The bus was empty besides one person towards the front. 
Could I really do this? I do have a water bottle. It's half full. Maybe I could just take the edge off. Anything at this stage. But what about the cameras? Surely I can hide behind the chair in front. I took out the bottle and in a move that felt incredibly counterintuitive, I took the biggest swig I could muster. Needed as much room as possible. I could not have an overspill situation. I then slid down and crouched behind the seat in front. I undid my flies. Almost there, old boy. The angle was suboptimal, but the relief was extraordinary as I peed into the bottle. Although I'd estimate I only got approximately 15% of my bladder's contents out before the water bottle was at the brim, it was enough to keep the wolf from the door, and I had bought myself a few valuable minutes. Quick look around, no one looking, sorted my trousers out and sat up as if nothing had happened. A minute or two later, I was off the bus, and as the relief-laden shame washed over me, I chucked the bottle in the bin and I made a beeline for my friend's house. On entry, I pushed straight past past him mumbling happy birthday can't talk need a piss and dived into the toilet where I I emptied the remaining 85% and took a long hard think about what I'd just done oh my god that is when I think about having to take that swig in order to make space in the bottle I actually feel sick but it also makes you think about you know we talk about the gender poo gap and stuff women don't unless you've got a she-wee to hand we don't you've got got to just be stronger you've just got to be stronger or or you, I feel like women are maybe slightly more used to the leaving, like going to the toilet before you go. Yeah. I, like, like when, when they say at the beginning, the bus was only 45 minutes and I didn't need one when I left. That is absolutely irrelevant. Uh, not the guidelines that I go by. Mm-hmm. You always, even if you need it or not. I mean, it's just drilled into as a kid. Like, you don't need it now, you might need it. Totally. For three pints. My blood is full after 250 mils. Also, it's so, you know, when they say, like, what is it called? It, once you open, once you start on a night out... They once say, you've broken the seal. Broken the seal, oh that's it. God. Once you've broken the seal, it's relentless. And, like, yeah. I mean, I'm not a massive beer drinker, but, like, if I have, like, a pint of cider and I break the seal, I can barely get a few more sips in before I got to run off again. I have a tip on breaking the seal. Tell us. Okay, so I've learnt this from pre-drinks and kneeling the toilet in the taxi or the queue for whatever. Are you just going to say piss in your pants? Just buy yourself a nappy, <laughs> which is fine if you have a nappy, by the way, actually. That's absolutely fine. Ideally, we before pre-drinks. Obviously. And then we after drink number one when you don't need the toilet at all. Okay. And that will buy you a surprising amount of time. Really? And you've already broken the seal. So you have one drink and you, you've you weed. Yeah. And then, yes, yeah, sure, carry on drinking and wee before you go. But just that first wee really, really can buy you, Do I'm you know going to say, what? upwards of 20 minutes. Do you know what comes into play, though, with pre-drinks is what you're fucking wearing. Yeah. Because if you are out jumpsuit. in a jumpsuit, a play suit, something where you've done a French tuck on a skirt and now you're going to have a to... A French tuck on a skirt? You know, like you might do the French tuck. Yeah. Yeah, well, you might do it and then... On a skirt. Well, then on trousers. No, fine, on trousers. But if, you, if you've if you spent ages getting this French tuck sorted and then you've got to go to the toilet and undo it I all... I don't think that's the same as a jumpsuit. Yeah, but it's annoying. It, it does, if I, I get the perfect French... I would never not go to French... be like, oh, well, I'm going to ruin my French tuck. Yeah, but if you're wearing like an oversized baggy blouse and you can get that perfect French mm. tuck right, you don't want to undo all that work that you've spent ages doing. Yeah, so that's why maybe I just not. Say, but the reason I pants. think I'm objecting so much is I don't want to give the men a free pass. Well, I'm talking about a female French top. I know, but then there's no real difference between that and a men's French top. And yeah. they say I don't want to ruin my French top. I'm like, fuck yourself. I'm wearing fucking a stick-on jumpsuit here. Yeah, get on with it. Oh, so stick-on boobs as well. I wear stick-on silicon nipple covers. Yeah, and then I stick the jumpsuit to me, so it means I really do have to wait. You are because, a sticky lady. Because then, once you've pulled it down, the sticky is less sticky. So you're trying to stick the jumpsuit back on, and it just doesn't stick on as well. Let's get sticky with Mickey. Oh my god, I was watching Matilda a few days ago with the little girl I look after, and it is pretty horrible, isn't it? This, the, and, so and I mean said to her, I said to her out, outwards, like when we were in the park, I was like, What would you like to do, Lily? And she went, She just put her hands around her neck and she went, Because <laughs> she meant the chokey from Matilda, and she wanted to watch <gasps> her cho- the, like Matilda. There but are, all the other parents must have been like, What the fuck is wrong with that kid? There are so many children's films, though, that are like. The child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang cool. is fucking terrifying. Oh, it's that, um, the prosthetic nose. Lollipops 
ice cream. How fucking thick are those kids? Oh, my God. Do come for an ice cream? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And it's like, Trudy just told you, Jemima and the other one, not to leave the cellar. What are you doing? You thick. The witches. The witches. (gasps) But again, that kid is stupid. He's not supposed to be in there. You you do, uh, you are scared, but these kids are thick. Why are you going into these conference rooms? Also, have you noticed with the witches that half the the, um, audience are bold men? Yes. They get them all in instead of having loads of bold women. To play the witches. My dad used to do that when he'd tuck us in at night. He'd come in and he'd go, child, it's a mouse. And then he'd run out again. I think maybe so no it's, it, it's an attempt to try and uh, warn ch- children in the real world not to not to do that. But yeah, I just but... think it's a bit excessive, isn't it? Also, it makes you think that only a certain type of person is a witch. Yes, or in fact, a pedophile. Yeah. When really? You know, it could be a teacher, could be a mum. Fuck, this got you know, dark. It's good to be aware of who's a paedophile, because it, it could be a mum. So, you know, just <laughs> keep, watch it. I wish we had started this. It's a good job I'm never going to be a parent, isn't it? Can you oh imagine? Oh my goodness, can you imagine? Now, just to let you know, I oh, it could, could, it could be, be me. So You should watch out, because it might be me. If you want me to set up your own bank account and I'll move you to Venezuela, we'll do it. <laughs> But yeah, sorry about weeing, but it, you know, you didn't piss yourself. No, you didn't, and you know, you you used what you had around you. That's the aim of the game, really. Is yeah, you know, you, you were you showed initiative, initiative, yeah, and that takes courage. You got <laughs> courage. You got you got what's the other one? Bravery. You got courage again, and not litigious. <laughs> not litigious. <laughs> Watched that episode yesterday. Oh God! See, friends fixes everything. It really does. Thank you, everybody, um, for listening. If you've got a turd tale or bladenage you want to send in, just do it. Don't don't think. Oh no, I'm stressing about it. Just send it in. It yeah, will be even fun. if it's worse than any of the ones you've heard. If you shit and pissed yourself and then had to sit in it for an hour over Sunday lunch, that's fine. Let us know. Exactly. Email in thepoodcastofficial at gmail.com or DM us even yeah. on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at the underscore podcast. Were you happy then because you knew the word handle? And you yeah. did it seamlessly. I did it fucking seamlessly. I'm not old anymore. Oh, I've got toothache. Oh, shit. Yeah. This side of my mouth is sore, left. I don't know if that's my wisdom teeth. Oh. Anyway, uh, oh, have you got a story about wisdom teeth? Needing a toilet in the dentist chair. Have you ever had that? I've had it. Have you ever farted into the dentist chair and made a really squeaky noise because the chair is wiped down? I'm not being funny. We need to wrap this up because I'm going to wet myself. Sorry. Okay, goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Being told you need a stoma is scary and it's venturing into the unknown. But thanks to my stone bag, I have done so much more than I ever thought possible and connected with thousands of people from all over the world with one goal to help others and show that a stoma can actually be a huge positive on your life. But don't just take my word for it. Able to poo wherever and whenever, whether I'm in a lecture on a run, shopping, traveling, whatever it is, without having to rush to find the nearest toilet or worse, not make it to the toilet. A positive I had when I had a bag was it really taught me how strong the human body is that I could survive with my insides poking out. Like to me, that's really badass. And I never got ring sting after a curry. <laughs> I like best about my stoma is the way it's given me the ability to travel without having to worry about access to toilets, especially when traveling abroad. This smile on my face that doesn't really leave because I can do what I want, I can eat what I want, I can go where I want, I go to festivals, I can have fun and it has given me my life back. It's made me me again and I couldn't ask for anything else.